Good afternoon. Jeff Stevens here. In this voting day, November 3rd, 2020. Listening to good old Waylon. It's a mystery. Sing about America. Big day today. There'll be a lot of upset people by the end of the day. It's going to be an interesting uh, afternoon, evening. We see uh, see the polls start to unfold for all of us and see which candidate has come ahead in the end. Um, but... I didn't uh, come on this podcast today to talk about voting. Um, I came on to talk about something that we're, it's going to get skimmed over uh, in most churches this time of year. Uh, we're going to talk about it at our church this evening. We're going to do a little bit of a study, less of a Bible study, a little bit more of a history lesson. It's got a little bit of Bible in it, but the history of the church as we know it, especially in the United States. And uh, the the big topic is going to be the Reformation. Um, you know, the, of course, Halloween was just here, and a lot of churches that do not celebrate or try to redeem Halloween uh, and just make it a day about candy and dress up, they'll practice Reformation Day, dress up as reformers, uh, they'll learn a little bit about the Reformation. But I thought it was worthwhile. Um, we skim over it every year as a real minor kind of holiday. I guess it's not necessarily a holy day, but it's such an important day in modern history. And why is it? And I thought that it would be important to take a little bit of time, although this might not be as long as some of the other podcasts, just to go over what really is the Reformation? Why is it so important? Um, you know, for a modern reformationalist, you hear the word or the name Martin Luther kicked around quite a bit and the 95 thesis. And we have, many have heard the story of Martin Luther nailing the 95 thesis to the church at the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, which is basically a big long list of 95 things he disagreed with, with the Pope. Uh, and this kicks off the, uh, Reformation, or as Catholics like to call it, it kicks off the protest. It's the lead into Protestantism. Um, so a couple different perspectives there. But what is it? Where does it come from? Is it really where we get our modern um, Reformed church today? Does it really start with Martin Luther? Was Martin Luther uh, important in this? Um, and how does it all play out for us today? And why should we know a little bit about it? And what about it should we take with us uh, at the end of the day when we're doing our Bible study, when we are focusing on tradition, and um, how does it all play out for us? So let's just talk about Martin Luther for a minute. So I said 1517, he nails the 95 Thesis to the door. So really his big thing was Martin Luther, um, you know, he was a monk who lived in poverty. He was really against indulgences. Now indulgences was a practice in the Catholic Church where you could pay basically to get rid of uh, sin. So sin that you had, you could pay off. Uh, you would go to the church 
and give them money and it would get rid of some of your sin or it would either get rid of sin here or it would reduce time that you spent in purgatory, which the Catholic Church believes is a place that you go where you, uh, between here and hell um, or here in heaven where you're saved, but you are not quite allowed into heaven yet. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, but it got really bad by the 1500s, all the way from the 1100s to the 1500s. The Catholic church is really basically just selling salvation is what they're doing. They are completely sold out for money. The Pope is rich. You know, they have huge, big buildings. They have castles and churches that dwarf anybody's home. People are in poverty and they have like traveling indulgence salesmen going around, um, you know, telling people if they don't give their last dime that uh, their loved ones are in purgatory, stay there and won't make it into heaven. So they're pulling at their heartstrings. So this really was, it was demonic. It was evil. Martin Luther doesn't agree. So he nails this. Now, nailing something to the church door would not have been a, a, an odd practice for the time, um, kind of like your bulletin board in your church. Uh, this was Martin Luther's way of sharing some of what he's studying with the, with the church. Uh, makes it to the to the Pope, all the way up to the Pope. Well, the Pope basically puts out a papal bull. He he releases a letter uh, addressing Martin Luther. Of course, there had been people over the years who the church had had to squash because they were kind of going off the rails and not agreeing with the church or the church's theology or the Pope. And uh, Martin Luther fell in that category. And so what they do is they have the Pope write him a letter and say, hey, man, You've got a certain period of time to write another letter retracting what you said, um, and then you need to repent of your sin or you're going to be excommunicated from the church. So he receives this. So 1517 is when he writes his letter. So by 1520, so 500 years ago this year, his letter is due, and the Pope is basically like, you got a certain number of days left or it's coming to an end. You are going away. Well, in the meantime, um, Martin Luther is writing letters and he's debating his contemporary theologians, Catholic priests, Catholics. Um, and at some point in 1520, one of his contemporaries essentially accuses him of being a Hussite. So Jan Hus or Jan Hus was a Czech priest who was also against um, indulgences. And he really also wanted his people to be able to read the Bible in their own language and check and study in their own language. Uh, and he was pretty mad at the church. Well, this is about 1417. And the church doesn't really give him much of a chance. They basically say, hey, uh, come to Rome and we're going we're gonna to take care of it for you. Um, he ends up at a church in his papal robes and they set him on fire and kill him. So um, Jan Hus had a, was pretty extreme as far as reformers are concerned. He had gone against a number of the, the things in the church. I won't get into everything. I've kind of gone over him before in the past. Uh, you can listen back to some of the early podcasts. But um, to be accused as a Catholic of being a Hussite would have been truly heretical because Catholic priests, monks, uh, sisters, brothers, they would all thought, no, I, I don't want to be a Hussite. That's truly heretical. 
So after being called a Hussite and he says, no, I am not, he goes back and he starts reading some of Jan Hus's um, uh, documents. And then he realizes in his reading, hold on a second, maybe I am kind of like this guy. And maybe I do need to stick with my conviction that the Pope does not have all this authority to make people pay for their transgression or pay for their sin by paying indulgences to try to get their way out of their sinful state and from, you know, their physical state into heaven by passing through uh, this place purgatory. <clears throat> so this is the 500-year mark this year in 2020 that this letter goes back to the Pope basically with Martin Luther saying, no, sir, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen at all. So um, some big disagreements uh, going on in the church at the time. And, of course, we have a lot of other um, kind of reformers poking their heads up at the time. The Catholic Church points to Martin Luther because he was a Catholic. So the Catholic Church will lump all Christians in the world that are not Catholic, especially in the West, as Protestants. So the, where does that word come from? So the word Protestant really at first appears uh, what is called the uh, the Diet of uh, Spire. It's 1529. So you got a Roman Catholic emperor in Germany, Charles, Charles V. And uh, he proceeds over this thing and he allowed each ruler to choose whether to administer the Edict of Worms, which was a uh, which banned Martin Luther's writings at all and declared him a heretic. So in April 1529, there was a protest against the decision, and then it was read on behalf of 14 of the free cities in Germany, and six Lutheran princes declared that the majority decision did not uh, bind them because they were not party to it, and that it f forced to choose between obedience to God and obedience to Caesar, and they must be obedient to God. So what happens as a result of this is they appear either to the General Council of Christendom um, or to Synod, the whole German nation, and this protest became known as the revolt of the Protestants. So the church looks at uh, Protestants as people who are revolting against the church teaching of paying indulgences uh, underneath the guidance of Martin Luther, who, um, you know, by now is, uh, has been excommunicated for sure from the church. So this is where it all kind of begins, the name Protestant. And it was attached uh, not just to Martin Luther, but also of uh, Zwingli and John Calvin, any of the Swiss reformers, uh, Holland and England and Scotland. And then it, it pushes all the way up into the 17th century uh, and most of those guys would refer to themselves as Reformed, <laughs> but uh, the Catholic Church would refer to them as Protestant. Uh, by the 16th century, um, Protestant referred primarily to two great schools of thought that arose, which would be uh, Lutheran and then Reformed Church, the Lutheran Reformed Church. The, the Protestant is what they're kind of bulked under. Um, and then in... In England, the word was used to denote uh, Orthodox Protestants uh, and those who were regarded by Anglicans as unorthodox, such as Baptists or Quakers. Um, so the Roman Catholics basically throw everybody 
in this mix, any of the Anglicans, Anabaptists, uh, um, people who followed Zwingli, people who followed uh, uh, Luther, basically anybody that's out there, they're saying they're Protestants. But, you know, we really have some pre-Reformation Christians, or the faith continued to move on after the first century without the Roman Catholic Church. Although the Roman Catholic Church does not like to admit this because they feel that they are the cornerstone for faith for the world, although that is absolutely heretical. You know, you have churches all over the world. Now remember, in Jesus' time, Rome dominated, right? So Rome continues to grow, and up through the fourth century, uh, we have Rome continuing to grow and pressing out everywhere. So of course, when uh, Christianity under Constantine becomes the uh, religion of the state, because they were a theocracy by that point, um, it becomes easy for Christendom to spread, and the Roman Catholic Church would have been the state religion. That doesn't mean Christians did not exist in the midst of it. It just meant that the state religion was Catholic, and it pressed it into basically everywhere that the Romans reached. But there were churches that existed all over that were not Roman Catholic, to include Eastern Orthodox, which is similar. But, uh, you know, we have good record of plenty, Paulicians, um, in, in Armenian groups, which, you know, from the 500s, and then um, another Armenian group, uh, the Tondrakians, um, you've got the Bogomils all the way up to the 10th century, and the 12th century, the Arnaldists, um, the Petrobrugians, uh, the Henricans, the Brethren of the Free Spirit, the Apostolic Brethren. These are, you know, up through time as you look at these things. Uh, we see that the uh, Neo-Adamites from the 13th to 15th century, um, some of the more popular ones that are kind of your classical proto-Protestants would have been like Peter Waldo with the Waldesians, uh, which starts in, you know, the 1100s, mid to late 1100s. Uh, you know, preach strict adherence to the Bible and simplicity and poverty uh, against Catholic dogmas. Um, he didn't believe in things like purgatory or transubstantiation. So these were things that were not new prior to what the Catholic Church would call Protestantism. Of course, one of the most famous ones, John Wycliffe. He's an English theologian, right? He's a professor from Oxford and what he really wanted was people to read the Bible in, a, in their own vernacular. Uh, he wanted people to read it in English, so he really sets out, and Wycliffe is, of course, excommunicated from the church uh, in the 1300s, um, and, you know, he is a, a proto-reformer. And then, if, like I spoke of earlier, Jan Hus with the Hussites, you're talking the early 15th century, is a Czech Catholic priest, and he's eventually burned in 1415 as a heretic. Um by the Pope. Um, and very similarly, he wanted people to read the Bible in his own language. Uh, he was influenced a little bit by John Wycliffe. Uh, the whole movement was called the Hussite movement. Um, so it's, it's a misnomer to think that when they say Protestant, that just because you're not a Catholic and you're a Christian, that you protested against the Catholic Church. Because realistically, there were Christian groups everywhere that did not subscribe to or fall under the heretical rule of the Pope. 
Okay, so and I don't bring this up to be an anti-Catholic uh, talk about the Reformation, but when we talk about reformation in the definition of the word itself, it's to reform the teaching back to what it's supposed to be. And what was happening was, is that there was no continuity. And part of the reason there was no continuity was that the dominant state slash church theocracy power in the world for many years was this Holy Roman Empire, and it had leveraged the power of the state inside of the power of the church, and uh, it had ruined what was supposed to be um, the faith in Christ for salvation and turned it into support of the church and paying alms for salvation. Uh, And it had really changed it. So these people were trying to get culture to go back to what Christ and his apostles taught. So one of the guys that has a really uh, big impact on all of us in the modern world is a guy named John Calvin. Now, I know there's a lot of people, if you're reformed, you may say, well, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't believe in five-point Calvinism. Well, okay, you may not. But Suffer this, what you're learning or or teaching today probably has had an impact by John Calvin at some point uh, because he was an amazing theologian who did a lot for reforming the religious culture uh, in the 1500s and it carrying forth through to today. So he was born in France, early 1500s, 1509, he's a theologian, a statesman, um, and he's a successor basically to Martin Luther. in the Protestant, if you will, religion, and he made a huge impact on fundamental doctrines of Protestantism or Reformationalism. Um, And then he ended up dying in Geneva, Switzerland in 1564. Um, But he started out as a law student and uh, he joined the cause for the Reformation in the 1530s and he did publish some works and he really held true to the doctrines uh, that people will enter heaven based on his omnipotence and his grace alone by our faith alone. And uh, that was really a huge reformation for how people had been believing before because there was a lot of works involved in the faith at the time. And he was really pulling that out and saying, no, it has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who God is and what God does for you. <clears throat> so... He was known for a real intellectual, unemotional approach to this whole thing. Um, it was all about uh, taking exactly from the Bible what uh, what needed to be extrapolated and applied to your faith. And um, he, you know, it was really looked at as dissent to the church. But uh, he, um, you know, under his rule in, in Geneva, 58 people were executed and 76 exiled for their religious beliefs. He allowed no art other than music. This guy was a strict religious uh, person. And um, he sent out pastors everywhere, uh, which started the movements like Presbyterianism in Scotland and the Puritan movement in England and Reformed Church in the Netherlands. And then he ended up dying, like I said, in Geneva. Um, But he is credited as probably... Um, the most important figure as far as the Reformation is concerned, just because, you know, uh, uh, Martin Luther says to the church, you're doing this wrong, and it kind of ends there. Although his letters are important, Calvin really takes it to the next level. It's like, okay, it's time for a huge movement. 
We've got a battle to fight. So it really is kind of the spurring of systematic theology. It's like, how do I get the people who are now starting to read the Bible in their own language, because that's been squashed for years and years because the church has been holding it down, to be able to understand what they're reading and have an apology for their faith, have a reason for their faith, have a reason to know what they believe is correct and be able to find it in the Bible. The true separation that they had from the Catholics here was on baptism, the Eucharist, on penance and predestination. I don't want to get it confused with five-point Calvinism, which we see get refined really up in, in the 1960s, but I want to look at that traditional um, Calvinism. I do want to bring up uh, Spurgeon for a second. Of course, he's a contemporary. He's a modern guy, right? So he, he uh, but I, just something, some quotes that he brought up as we look at the Reformation itself is, um, was the Reformation just something that came out in the 16th century against the Catholic Church? And he, uh, Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, uh, said this. He says, we believe that the Baptists are original Christians. We did not commence our existence at the Reformation. We were reformers before Luther or Calvin were born. We never came from the Church of Rome, for we were never in it. We have an unbroken line up to the apostles themselves. We have always existed from the very days of Christ, and our principles sometimes veiled and forgotten, like a river which may travel underground for a little season, have always had honest and holy adherence. Uh, Important to understand that he is again making the case here that it is Christ that maintained the church from the time of the apostles to now, not a church. And that there's a long line of people that Christ has allowed to bear those crosses that have continued throughout history, and that although Reformed, the church is, it's not necessarily Protestant in its upbringing. We are not protesting the Catholic church. We simply believe something different and are continuing to reform it to get it to the point where it is as pure as possible through our studying of the word of God, our understanding of the original language, and our understanding of the culture uh, that Christ would have for us. Not only the culture in the Old Testament, the culture in the New. Spurgeon went on to say, We know among men in all ages by various names, such as Donastus, Novatians, Paulicians, um, Petrobrugians, Cathari, Arnaldus, Hussites, Waldenises, Lollards, and Anabaptists have always contended for the purity of the church and her distinctness and separation from human government. Our fathers were men injured to hardships and unused to ease. They present to us their children an unbroken line which comes legitimately from the apostles, not through the filth of Rome." Uh, pretty harsh statement, but easy to understand that he is continuing to make that case. Uh, it's actually Rome that screws up the gospel. It is not these churches. It's not you know mankind who's toiling to make it better uh, that's screwing it up. It's Rome, or you know as first century Christians would call it Babylon. Um, Twenty years after that quote, uh, Spurgeon said this. Long before your Protestants were known of, these horrible Anabaptists, as they were unjustly called, were protesting for the, quote, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, unquote. 
No sooner did the visible church begin to depart from the gospel and these men arose to keep fast by the good old way. At times, ill-written history would have us think that they died out. So well had the wolf done his work on the sheep. Yet here we are, blessed and multiplied. Really important words from uh, you know, a phenomenal theologian who's basically laying out the case like we have a long line uh, of men and women and families who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, who through the power of the Holy Spirit have continued to uh, you know, bring the gospel through time and that as reformationalists, well, all we are doing is trying to reform the church as it is now back to what it is supposed to be when Christ established it in the first century. Now, of course, we are sinful humans, sinful people, fallen mankind, and it will, it'll be a constant toil, but it is a reality uh, that people have toiled for that case um, for two millennia. Um, going back to the Reformation specifically, when you talk about Reformation Day, a lot of people high-five each other and say, Happy Reformation Day. My question I always ask for is, have you read the 95 Thesis and do you agree with them? And you know, some people will kind of be like, yeah, I've looked them over and they're good. Well, are they really? Because Martin Luther... Uh, as a Roman Catholic, really didn't, he loved the Catholic Church and didn't want to fall away. He really was less of a reformationalist and more of a true Protestant. Why? He was protesting against the indulgences specifically, but he still believed in some other things. You know, the seventh thing out of the 95 is God remits guilt to no one unless at the same time he humbles himself in all things and makes him submissive to the vicar the priest, so the vicar being the pope or, you know, the embodiment of Christ. So he believes the pope is the vicar. You know, he makes comments, uh, you know, in the ninth uh, line where he refers to the pope in his decrees and um, the canon in, in, in purgatory in the 10th. And then in the 16th, he refers to purgatory as well as the 17th and the 18th and the 19th. Uh, He agreed with this idea of purgatory. He just didn't agree with the idea that we had to pay for our way out of purgatory with money, especially if we were poor, nor could we pay for our way out of purgatory or pay the way out of purgatory for someone else or loved ones. He still believed in it. So, you know, there's a case to be made that purgatory is not a thing. I've... I've gone, I've studied, I've looked for it, the support in two Maccabees about, you know, paying alms for the dead. Although Maccabees is not canon. Um, I think, you know, it didn't become canon until the Council of Trent. And that was the 1500s in in the Catholic Reformation because now they're trying to make the case for purgatory. Uh, But, you know, uh, 1500 years later, they're saying that... um, you know, Maccabees' canon is just, it is not. So one, it's not a book that is uh, matches the rest of the Bible. It's good for looking at the Maccabean Wars and looking at, looking at Jewish history. But two Maccabees 12, 41 to 46. There's also some New Testament um, support the Catholic Church will give you, 2 Timothy 1.18, Matthew 12.32. They have nothing to do with purgatory at all. Um, don't want to talk about purgatory today, but I try to explain purgatory as a thing. Here's the thing with purgatory. Purgatory, if you believe in it, cheapens the work of Christ on the cross, period. Christ said it's finished. 
He is the propitiation of sins. Uh, excuse me, the propitiation of sins. He atoned for your sins. That's it. If he wasn't good enough, then you shouldn't believe in him. If he was good enough and you believe in him, then when you die in him, just like the thief next to him on the cross, he says, today I'll see you in paradise. Then when you pass into the next, you will see him in paradise. So why is this important? Why is it important to go over these things and understand that as believers, it is important that we kind of know the history of who we are? Well, the original church was unified under Christ, not a man. And when Christ says, I'll build my church on this rock, he's putting it himself. I'm going to build it on me, the Petros. I'm going to build it on me as the cornerstone, not on Peter. We need to understand that a singular church is not the cornerstone of the faith. Christ is. Um. When you start to have a church that that's, that is that big, it has the same problems as a theocracy, as a government. So when it comes up with rules and regulations and it has a vicar that is somehow, you know, there's other religions that have a prophet. The Mormons have a prophet. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a some sort of prophet that, you know, writes in a magazine every quarter or something like that. It's like all these things. You got some person in charge that delivers some sort of edict or some sort of bull or some sort of prophecy that comes from God. Well, which one is right? And how does it apply? And does it agree with the biblical text? And there's all these problems that come up with it. So here lies the problem when you put a man, one single man in charge of everything. Now, that doesn't mean that we do not stand to have elders in a church or people overseers in a church. It's biblical to have uh, men who are overseeing the church and making sure that the church is running well and that it's got uh, you know guys with experience and time in the faith who can help guide us bishop like folks you know much like you look at Paul writing uh, in the New Testament to churches getting them going giving them reproof giving them instruction helping them to grow to live to reject people or accept people all important and then it pushes us to keep our theology sharp. That's one of the things that is very important about this is that it pushes us to continue to study and continue to learn so we don't fall in the trap of letting someone deceive us. As we reform ourselves, as we continue to get back to what is the basics of what Christ would have for my life, it means we need to read. It means we need to study. We need to do exegetical studies. We need to go through each book of the Bible and see how it applies to Christ, where it comes from Christ and then how it applies to my life, if it does, if those texts even do apply. Remember, not everything in the Bible applies to your life. Some of it's history, some of it's allegory, some of it's poetry. doesn't necessarily mean it has something specific for you. Um, I'm reminded this morning, I've been reading a lot in the Psalms. I brought this up in the last couple of podcasts, Psalm 120. Psalm 120, the psalmist says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from dying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? It wore your sharp arrows with glowing coals of the bottom broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace? For I am peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
when I read this, I think about voting in the election today. Voting in the election today, much like being a reformer, means when you stand for what is right, what is good, what is true, what is Christian, what would God have for me, what would Jesus have for me, my convictions as a believer, it means that people are not going to like you. There is peace in the covenant with God, that God has things for us that are good, a certain way to act, a certain way to live, a certain way to love one another and to be loved. We break outside of those things and we continue to remind ourselves, each other, our families, and our communities that we should be first loving Christ and then as a result of that responding in a certain way, People are for war. They're not going to like you. It's important that we understand that this is going to happen. It's not going to stop. Just like the psalmist says, I'm for peace. Like, I want it to be peaceful. They just don't. They just don't. So on this voting day and in this month where we celebrate 500 years that Martin Luther responded to the Pope, my encouragement to you is just stay on the grind. Stay prayerful. Stay honest with people. Don't cower. Don't settle. Love your wife, love your husband, love your children. Bring them up in the word of God. Remind them that there is holiness in them and that they should strive for righteousness and holiness because of him. Love them well. Love your neighbors well by being honest with them about the peace and the hope that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Only. That just because you have peace and you are silent does not mean that you are fulfilling the Great Commission. You are not reaching people for the case for Christ if your peacefulness means not mentioning his name. So go out today and share the gospel with somebody. God bless you. Stay on the grind.